0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com green dreamer. The way that people
1: understood what freedom meant was that it was about like you had your people and that collectively you were able to get the things that you needed for everyone to survive, right? You had food, you had shelter, you had water, children, disabled people, babies, and elders were cared for. This was like how you be free was in the collective.
0: Today we're speaking with Mia Birdsong, a Pathfinder, author, and facilitator who steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. She has a gift for making visible and leveraging the brilliance of everyday people so that our collective gifts can reach larger spheres of influence, cultural and political change, and create well-being for all of us.
1: There is something so seductive about the idea of the american dream and this is this is part of how it functions is that it paints this beautiful and i'm putting this in quotes (laughs) beautiful this picture of success and happiness and tells us that accessing that thing that all you have to do is work hard and it is is basically advertisement, right? It is like Mm. 1950s advertisement for life. And, you know, we, we all want to be happy. We all want to feel like our lives are, and again, I'm putting this in quotes, successful. We're told, right, from a very young age, when you grow up in America, that like, here's how you get this thing. And this is what it looks like. What is wrong with that is that well, <laughs> like every piece mm-hmm. of it is a lie. <laughs> it creates a kind of hierarchy for what our what our families right, which are so deeply personal and critical should look like and it's this kind of manifestation of this it's an insular nuclear family that is if it's not white it is it uh practices white culture if it's not actually. Straight people, it's still heteronormative. It does not depend on the state for anything, and in many ways, it is a replication, right, of like monarchy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it is a man whose wife and children and home are are like all basically property, and we have these these kind of incremental shifts that we've made in the last 150 years to you know, the mom is allowed to work, or there can be two moms, or like, they can be black, but they still have to align to a kind of respectability. They have to align to a kind of culture that is still very white, is still very heteronormative, is still very insular, and is about, you know, this group of people, they are self-sufficient. And again, I'm putting that in quotes as nobody self-sufficient. And it also ignores, of course, all of the barriers that have been built to prevent people from actually getting to this place. So even if it was a good place, which it's not, most of us can't get there anyway. And part of what it has, part of the damage that it's done Is it has had so many of us, and I my myself included, right? Point our paths towards something that upon further reflection, like not only can we not achieve, but we don't actually want. You know, and then we we spend all of this like time and energy and Beat ourselves up for not getting there because, of course, we were actually because all of us are working hard, and we're like, "Why is it? Why, why is it not working? That we're not getting to the thing that we're told all we had to do is work hard to get there." And our failure, right, is individualized when, in fact, there are like like our America has built actual barriers to prevent people from achieving this thing that, again, upon further reflection, many of us discover we don't even want. And it's in service of maintaining patriarchy. It's in service of maintaining the idea that individuals are responsible for any of the harm they experience. It's in service of maintaining white supremacy and it is in service of maintaining capitalism. What is true for us as people is that we are fundamentally community-oriented social animals. We are not like our cousins, right? The snake or the lizard who are, you know, our parents lay eggs and and we hatch from the egg and then we're like, we can go and like, get our own food and find our own shelter and like do what we got to do until we die. We are born helpless and we need care for quite a long time until we're able to not be self-sufficient because we're not self-sufficient, but until we're able to participate in the collective process of making sure that our community has food, our community has shelter, our community has care. And the idea that we are going to, as people, grow up and then be self-sufficient just is, I mean, this is part, part of what capitalism does is it creates a barrier between the things that we need and the people who actually make those things available to us, right? Most of us are not parts of communities where we're collectively building homes or growing food or providing education or taking care of each other like taking like medical care or taking care of elders usually we are buying those things but there's still a whole system of people who are who are there to make sure that those things are available to us and an individual person can't actually be self-sufficient. We can't like, nobody is going out and like hunting and gathering their own food, building their own shelter, you know, taking care of their own broken leg, doing their own surgery, teaching themselves.
0: Right. And even that isn't self-sufficient because things come from the land and that's a community too. Totally. Yes. That's where I was going to go next, right? Is <laughs> okay. that we
1: as people, right, have this idea that to be self-sufficient is to, yes, is to like basically extract all of these things from the rest of the natural world and make it our own. And then it like does for us when in fact, we are, of course, not only in relationship with other humans, we are in relationship with everything. Mm -hmm. So this idea, right, that like, we're all going to grow up and we're going to get married and have children and have a job where we're going to earn enough money to purchase all of the things that not just all the things that we of course need but actually a whole bunch of crap we don't need right and that's going to make us happy and successful like that's the American dream mm-hmm. and I think that one of the many kind of hard but like necessary gifts of COVID has been to reveal so much more to to many more people the the lie that that is
0: yeah it certainly feels like. We've been sold so many visions and told so many things about what we need in order to thrive, but more and more people, thankfully, are waking up and seeing through these lies and relearning to feel and listen to our deeper yearnings for what it is that Mm. we truly need in order to feel cared for and nourished and safe in a real sense of the word and rooted. And from how we show up, you ask some really foundational questions. What does it really mean to be in deep, close community? What form does it take? Who is included and why? End quote. Especially during a time when I believe at least big tech and social media platforms have superficialized and diluted the deeper meaning of community. I think these are really important questions to sit with so that we might be able to fulfill our yearnings with something that feels a lot more nourishing and authentic and real. But I would be curious to hear how your thought process and ideas of community has evolved as you've leaned deeper into these questions and what you envision today as you think of this type of community that we need for our mental, emotional, spiritual health and collective resilience as well.
1: I mean, I think that there are these, there are these ways, I mean, you started, you, you were talking about this, this, this returning to something, right? Part of what brings me comfort in thinking about like what is our path forward is recognizing that everything that we that we need and want has existed or does exist in some form, right? We actually do not have to invent anything new. We may have to adapt it for the context that we're in, but there is so much to lean into and to kind of allow to surface if we tap into our ancestral knowledge, if we tap in, and I mean all of us, right? Because all of us are from, if we go back far enough, are from places that practice deep community and had relationships with the rest of the natural world that were not extractive and destructive in the way that they are now. So tapping into that ancestral knowledge, tapping into like digging underneath the fear and anxiety and disconnection and sense of scarcity that our current world has infected us with to see what we really long for and understand that that longing is birthright. And I think about things like belonging, the kind of safety that you're talking about, right? I think about things like we want to be part of a network, a connected network of people and place that allows us to be ourselves and that allows us to contribute and allows us to, be, to receive allows us to be to be known to be deeply seen and allows us to to know and see others allows for our nourishment allows for our growth allows us to like feel allows those feelings to be witnessed allows us to grieve and to do those things in ways that are not are not put forward into a kind of restriction the restrictions that that capitalism and that other systems kind of they're like make space for right but when i think about what it means to be free right i think about the social movements that i'm part of and our north star of liberation this is what i think about i think about like that freedom is, again, this is a this is another kind of American dream adjacent thing, right? We have like America kind of tells us that freedom is about, it's deeply individualistic, right? It's my freedom. It is about achieving, and again, I'm putting this in quotes, in independence. It's about accumulating enough resources so that you do not have to ask anyone for anything. It is about being like this idea that you can do whatever you want and you're not accountable to anyone and you're not responsible for anyone. So it's a version of being a person that is like utterly and completely disconnected from anyone or anything. And when I think about what liberation actually is, Right. It is about is about like I can't actually have the things that I need and want without other people, without community. And neither can they. (laughs) Like no one can have the things they need and want without each other. And that liberation is actually a collective process. And in fact, when I was doing research for my book, there's a handful of facts. (laughs) pieces of information, wisdom that I came across that just like blew my mind and kind of solidified this for me. One is that freedom and friendship etymologically have the same root, which means beloved. And when I Mm -hmm. thought about that, I was like, oh, (laughs) like these words Mm -hmm. were birthed together, right? Freedom and friendship were words that were birthed together. So that was one piece. And then the other, and this is like in a, in a Western context, and I actually don't, I'm actually doing more research on this right now for a project that I'm doing on the future of freedom. So I, I don't have all of this information yet, but I'm assuming this is a Western context that before the 1500s, the way that people understood what freedom meant was that it was about like you had your people and that collectively you were able to get the things that you needed for everyone to survive, right? You had food, you had shelter, you had water, children, disabled people, babies, and elders were cared for. This was like how you be free was in the collective. And then in fact, how slavery was understood was that to be a slave was it was not just that like someone else could tell you what to do right to be a slave you were a slave because you were disconnected from your people you were a slave because you were taken away from your people and when i think about that understanding of freedom in the context of black people's experience in america i think about us being kidnapped from the continent of africa and held hostage On plantations. So I think about that separation. I think about the constant threat that was not tangential, but was like integral to what American slavery was, the constant threat of being sold away from your loved ones or your loved ones being sold away from you. I think about the post-Reconstruction terrorism in the South by white people through lynchings and the threat of lynching and the refugee crisis that caused for black people who fled north and west. I think about the prison industrial complex and the way that it has locked up and put so many black people in cages far away from their families. So I think about all those things. I think about this basically this American project to make black people not free by separating us from each other. And then I also think about our unending resistance to that American project of separation. So I think about Black people who ran away from slavery to find loved ones who had been sold away from them. I think about post-emancipation. There's actually this amazing, heartbreaking and beautiful archive that you can access online of a bunch of the ads that black folks placed in newspapers trying to find their mothers, their brothers, their friends, their husbands and wives who they hadn't seen for like 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. And they're, you know, they're all very short, but they're just they're beautiful and heartbreaking. I think about in parts of the country where usually women have organized buses to take to transport people from the cities where they live out into usually rural places where where their loved ones are in prison so that they can go visit them. I think about the organized effort that has happened to try to end the monopoly on phone calls to prison that allowed phone companies to charge amounts of money that people could not afford in order to like just make phone calls to people that they loved. And then I think about the way the like long, standing practice of Black people just making family with whoever, with the other people who are around them. The way that we, that like chosen family is such a fundamental part of the Black experience in America. So much so that I feel like most of the Black adults that I know, they like find out when they're grown, right? That Uncle Bobby is not actually their father's brother, but is their father's like best friend from high school. Mm. So that... (laughs) seeing freedom through that lens, right? This idea that like freedom is about your people changes not only how I understand the black experience in America, but changes how I see the kind of dominant understanding, the dominant story about what freedom is versus what it really is, right? Because the dominant story about what freedom is, is about disconnection and separation. And so much of what I of the patriarchy and and white supremacy of the ways that they put forward an idea of what a good life is right is just really a, like self-hatred mm-hmm. is just a utterly self-hating dehumanizing punishing path to live a life
0: it's beautiful and it's powerful, this recognition and reminder that power comes from being connected, having community, practicing culture together. And it all invites us to go back to our foundational human needs, which I think most people know in our hearts that, you know, we are social creatures and we need community. We need interdependence on others in order to personally be well. So yes. personal thriving is very much tethered to our collective thriving. and. Part of building community calls on us to expand our capacities for empathy. And mm-hmm. I think about our culture of disconnection and superficiality and how people often talk about how our world is becoming increasingly divisive. I almost wonder if this divisiveness comes not entirely, at least from people just having differences in our values and opinions and worldviews, because people are diverse in our upbringing, experiences, cultures, values, and so forth. So while I don't doubt that the narratives we've been fed, especially by corporate or partisan media, are driving larger wedges between people, I also would question whether our capacity to hold empathy, to seek to understand over a judge, to engage in the complexity of the human experience rather than to simplify people and to shun them for very reductionistic things. Maybe this capacity for empathy has been eroded for all sorts of reasons as well. And maybe due to the systems we've been a part of, but what would you add to question here when oh. we think about our capacities for empathy and its role for deeper community?
1: That is so brilliant. You, you are brilliant and insightful so, what that makes me think of is that one of the coping mechanisms we have as people when we experience crisis or trauma or harm is to numb ourselves, right? We just shut down so that we cause because the thing that 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 we're experiencing is too much for us to feel, which is super useful right in in if you think about kind of human evolution and If there is a need to function, right, like run away or do something that is going to save your life, you know, feeling like processing those feelings, you can't, you don't have time for it, like in the moment, right? But we live in a culture where we are so often experiencing harm and trauma and abuse and attack. And I mean, like, you know, we've just, we're, we're still, we are still in a pandemic. And the experience of the pandemic has been an experience of trauma for everyone. And what that trauma looks like is absolutely different, depending on all kinds of things. But, but no one has not experienced trauma. And that we don't have a, that we're expected to kind of carry on right, in the face of that trauma means that we are numbing. And this has been, you know, so the pandemic is one example, but I feel like the culture of violence and extraction and degradation of ourselves, of the, of the rest of the natural world is this kind of constant trauma. And I think that we are, and then our access to information about all these things happening, right, that our response is numbing. And when we are numbing, We're obviously not feeling our own feelings, but it's also kind of impossible for us to experience and feel empathy. I feel like we're, you know, you and I are talking and it's the beginning of June. We, again, still in a, still in a pandemic in the United States, we've also just had the kind of like this public attention on multiple acts of terrorism and gun violence. And that's just like one example of kind of what's going on, and I feel like there is this. I I am feeling, and have felt this overwhelm of my system, and it does not feel like there is room to pause and feel things, to pause and grieve. And I'm someone who try, makes an attempt to do those things and tries to find room to do those things, but you know we don't have a culture of being of being taught that those feelings are okay. We are rewarded and celebrated when we push through. We're rewarded and celebrated when we put our feelings aside and, you know, keep going. Get our work done, take care of other people, like whatever it is that is what we're we're expected to do to function. Our culture is like you're you're awesome if you can keep doing those things despite all this other stuff happening. So we don't we don't have a lot of permission, right, to to feel our own feelings, never mind like actually empathizing with other folks. You know, I found that after the murder of children in Texas that I had to like it was important for me to to tap into my grief and to tap into my empathy and I had to dig a little bit deeper to get there. And that meant getting closer to the specifics of people's trauma and i felt like it was an important process for me to to be able to tap into my my own grief and my empathy but i also was just aware of how like voyeuristic it felt to have to feel like okay i need to i need to find the you know really powerful but also felt gratuitous kind of storytelling about people's experiences in order to, to find my own feelings, you know, and part of that feels like a legitimate process of making real and human people through their stories and their experience. But I also just like it, it it is unsettling to me that sometimes just knowing about a thing isn't enough for us to kind of tap into that, to our grief and to tap into our empathy.
0: Yeah. I mean, with all of these things happening, on top of the climate crisis and our existing all forms of injustices, I don't think our bodies have grown to be able to process all of these large scale and societal traumas on our own either. And so Mm -hmm. our capacities to feel, grieve and hold empathy have been systemically robbed from us. And then we're told that we're weak when we can't handle these things alone, which just kind of furthers this vicious cycle for our collective well-being and public health. So there's a lot to undo there and to push back against in terms of how we might actually reclaim our capacities for empathy and for healing, and also to rebuild the communities we need for our individual and collective healing. And earlier, I touched on how I think big tech and social media platforms have co-opted a lot of our relational needs, like using the terms community, friend, connection, Mm. engagement, in ways that are much more surface level than i think what we more deeply yearn for. So there's that that aspect this concern that a lot of us have been disillusioned into filling our voids with things that don't go nearly far enough to really nourish what we need for our social well-being. And then even darker is when our human yearnings to belong get hijacked by those with malicious intent with exclusionary and discriminatory views of who belongs and who is less than and deserves less than. And i think There's a need to expand our capacities for empathy even more here if we have space for that. Because sometimes when people have certain voids or senses of insecurity and fear and are unsure what those feelings actually mean or where to direct the frustration, we become more vulnerable to these discriminatory mm-hmm. stories about who we are and what we should be a part of to feel connected to something larger than ourselves that might help us to feel safe and grounded. So how have you thought through our innate human needs for belonging, but through the different forms that they show up for people? Yes. And whether the end result of how one defines community then impacts our larger communal well-being?
1: So I have two thoughts. One is I read or heard about a study that was done on anti-abortion like people who are part of the anti-abortion movement and one of the things they found is that the people who were most committed to that movement and most involved and kind of put in the most work and showed up you know at clinics to harass people going to get health care that it wasn't the the people who were most vehement were not the people with the most kind of like who held the idea the ideology the, the most tightly it wasn't the people who believed the most but it was the people for whom like the community was like that was like where they found community those are the people who showed up mm-hmm. right because wow. they they had a sense of belonging though they have a sense of belonging and i think about so much of the Violence that we and I'll, let's talk about gun violence for uh, for a minute, right? When I think about what we need to do, so often what our reaction is is to be like, "Well, what? How do we solve this problem right now? What is the immediate solution?" So there's a subway shooting in New York, and the mayor is like, "Oh, we need more cops," <laughs> which is just like a non-solution. That is an unsolution. That is not going to do anything it is going to make some people feel safer and it's going to make some people feel like oh something is being done but it is it is a negative solution. So then we have gun laws, right? An actual solution, something that, you know, will take to- a little bit of time but like seems like a feasible thing to try to create, right? Like regulations around guns. So when I think about that I'm like yes that seems like a good idea that we should have I don't know background checks <laughs> that people should have licenses things like that but you know what that does is that reduces the body count that doesn't actually stop violence the thing that stops violence and and is much harder for us to sit with as a solution is because it's something that is long term because it's something that it's a solution that would that we would not be here to actually see. It's a solution that has us deeply examining masculinity, right? And what it means to be a man. It has it's a solution that has us asking like how do we how do we create space for people to feel belonging not by who they hate and who they're keeping out, but by where they actually are seen and held and loved and cared for. That is culture change. And that kind of change takes decades. But one of the things I think about when I think about work that I'm doing that I'm not going to see the results of, right? I'm not going to see like the thing actually happen, is I think about people who did work to make change that I benefit from who did not get to see it. So I think about enslaved Black people, right? I don't know, in the like 1700s, let's say, who were abolitionists and who only knew for generations before them, their ancestors were enslaved and for generations after them, their descendants were enslaved. But they were not like, oh, let's pass some laws To make slavery less shitty for everybody but they were like no the thing that we need is to end this institution this institution that is upholding the entire economy of america and i so i'm like okay like if they if they were if they were clear enough That the thing that needed to change was that this thing needed to end and not that it needed to be reformed or, you know, that we needed to kind of like tinker around the edges, but we actually need to like do the work to end this thing. And it took decades, decades and decades. Then I want to be able to sit right in the long arc of thinking about how do we actually address violence? How do we actually address so much of the the oppression and extraction that we that we see and experience. And I think that like cultures of belonging, right? like creating creating cultures where we actually feel like we belong is a huge part of that. And that requires not just that you and I have a conversation and get to know each other, but it requires ending capitalism. <laughs> like we can't we can't have a system that needs us to to perpetually. Accumulate things and acquire things, and to spend our time producing if we are going to be in community with each other. And as you pointed out earlier, with the rest of the world, right? Like with land, with trees, with crows. We can't have the life that we are meant to have and that we deserve tomorrow right in that context like creating laws is not going to do that we have to actually change fundamentally the culture that we exist in and i'm so here for that work
0: Mm.
1: and i will say that i think that there is this really powerful place for us to sit in that while we are creating this this like liberated joyful connected future that the way that we get there is by practicing it now. So I feel like there is all kind of work that I'm here to do. But one of the most important things for me is to be in community where I feel like I belong and where the people who I'm in the community feel like they belong, and to be free people together, to practice that to try to make it the thing that we mostly experience. And that doesn't mean that like, I'm not going to have to like have a job and make money and buy things. It doesn't even mean that I'm not going to buy things I don't need, right? It doesn't mean I'm going to never use Instagram again or not buy plastic things, right? It doesn't mean that I'm going to like become a minimalist But it means that as much like it means believing that that future is possible for us and that the way that we get there is not by, you know, creating like a spreadsheet or a strategic plan, but it's like embodying that as much as we can with each other right now.
0: Well, earlier we were sort of questioning and regrounding what freedom means. And I think here we're really being called into question, what does it really mean to feel safe? And what would it mean to see safety as primarily coming from community itself rather than something that is outside and on top of, like an institution that is outside and on top of? And just as an analogy for our listeners who may be coming to this show with more of the ecological lens, investing in the carceral system, in my mind, is akin to amping up on the use of pesticides and herbicides in agriculture, which most people understand to be not a very uh, health-enhancing approach, which just takes on this symptoms-focused solution of targeting, isolating, and locking up or killing, rather than actually tending to the underlying conditions that created those symptoms. And so transformative justice, just to put a name to what I believe you were speaking to, feels like it's more about addressing those underlying conditions and creating the conditions that ultimately can help us feel safe and secure and rooted in our communities. Is that sort of accurate or what else would you add to this? Yes. And I love this
1: analogy too, because I feel like it's also not that like by tending to the land, like we get rid of aphids, for example, right? It's Mm -hmm. that like aphids are still going to happen, but we can create conditions where like aphids are gonna happen, but it doesn't like you know, they don't eat all the kale, right? Like mm-hmm. and that the like the ladybugs, this is what I do in my garden, right? The ladybugs show up and they eat the aphids. So like some of my kale is gone, but not all of it. And I feel like when I think about humans and I think about harm, right? It's not that we're gonna get rid of harm. It's that the way that we're going to address harm is I mean, part of it is about trying to prevent it. So trying to to raise people right to raise children and to make sure that they get the love and the care that they need and that their the people who are who are raising them also have the love and care that they need so that we have we're reducing it on one end but it's not like harm is never going to happen but then it means okay how do, how do we address the harm miriam kaba talks about how no one is the best or like the best thing that they have done or the worst thing that they've ever done, right? We we exist, like all of us are capable of harm and all of us absolutely perpetrate harm and all of us experience harm. And if we understand that, then when we, when we have to tend to someone who's experienced harm, we also recognize that we need to tend to the person who has perpetrated harm because people cause harm because they're they're missing something, because something is wrong, because something needs to be healed. In the absolutely necessary focus on people who, on the healing of people who experience harm, we also have to recognize that if we don't want harm to continue, yes, locking somebody up is not the answer. <laughs> but healing whatever needs healing in them is how that happens. And that is, you know, my understanding of of the transformative part of transformative justice is like that's the transformation that it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't leave the possibility open for, for the person to, to perpetrate the same harm again. And I think part of it is like not, is not kind of intellectualizing or it or extracting it to situations where we're talking about intense violence But thinking about, like, well, how am I moving through the world? Like, where am I being impatient or short? Or where are the places where I get activated and I act outside of my integrity? And how can I recognize that, right? What's my responsibility to be doing my work to be healing myself, right? And then what is the help that I need? What is the support that I need? How can I be in? like part of being in relationship is about being with people who will support your accountability. And Mia Mingus, who is a disability justice activist and a transformative justice practitioner, talks about how if you are not, if the relationships in your life, if they're not relationships in your life where you are intentionally actually having conversations about accountability, then you are living an unaccountable life. Then you are perpetuating being in relationship with with people in ways that that lack accountability. When I heard her say that, I was just like, "Whoa!" Because I'd I had not I don't think I'd had conversations with like the people I'm really close to about like how we need help with our accountability. And it shifted like so much of of the way that I'm in relationship with like my closest friends in particular, and you know, we had to actually have conversations about like the things that we, the place we had to have conversations about the places where we are, where we mess up and where we are our worst selves and where we make mistakes the most often. And that was, I mean, I feel like I'm still doing that. It is deeply (laughs) humbling, but man, it is also, it's also, it's a relief, right? There's something like, Mm that like after you when you start telling people about the ways in which you're a terrible person right like it's like oh like I can get this off my chest and guess what like they still love you right they and then they tell you about the ways that they mess up and I feel like that space right that's part of what I mean about being seen right it's not just like we want I want recognition for how I'm awesome and how I'm like Dope, and how I do good things. Like I also want to be seen. I don't, you know, I don't want people to like point it out like loudly necessarily. But like, <laughs> I want my 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 wounds, right? My wounds to be seen. I want my like one of the things I I often say to people is that like my parenting is my parent. My children get the worst of me. These babies, like they push all of my buttons. They bring up all of my unresolved <laughs> stuff around my childhood. <laughs> like. That is the place where like, you know, so, and so much of my motivation for like me getting my shit together and doing my work and my, and like healing my old wounds has been because I'm like my, I will be a better parent because of this. I will be healing like intergenerational stuff and not passing it on to them. If I do my work, you know, and like, nobody wants to be a bad parent and like to be clear like i'm not a bad parent i'm ai do some amazing parenting my children love me like that's i'm not saying that like i'm a terrible person but i'm just saying the stuff that is that is unhealed in me reveals itself most deeply with my parenting and that is like hard stuff to admit but when but like being able to talk about that and share that with people who love me has has just i mean that in and of itself ends up being part of like what allows me to heal from it and i just i wish all of us right the courage to be vulnerable in that way last end of july last year i got diagnosed with colon cancer i was like the like 20 minutes after the surgeon told me that i had cancer i had a call with a friend of mine who we were doing a work project together and I went into my, like my survival mode. Right. Which was, I was like, Oh, this is going to, this is going to mess up the timeline of the project we're working on. (laughs) So in telling her about it, I was like, so, so, Aisha I just found out that I have colon cancer and it's gonna like it means that I'm gonna have to have surgery and that's gonna like and I started talking about like what it was gonna push back around our project
0: Mm.
1: and Aisha because she's amazing (laughs) made me pause and you know she had to like she had feelings about what I had just told her and wanted like more information but she you know she just like pulled me out of my numbness out of my survival mode and like gave me room gave both of us room to like begin to feel what I was talking about and before we got off the phone my sister had the you know meal train set up part of what that kind of first interaction reminded me was about what I had learned from all these people I interviewed in my book and from my experience of the pandemic up until that point it, what i'd learned about asking for help so i told everybody that i knew like i told all of my people our approach to illness in america is is often about privacy both because you know we don't want to be perceived as weak and because we think of medical information as as being private and there is this very unspoken assumption that the way that you're the person that you're going to share your like medical information with if you have you get sick or you have a disability or you have like a chronic illness you know it's your parents when you're growing up and then you're going to get married and it's going to be your spouse right so there is there continues like the insular nuclear family right like impacts how we think about the kind of medical care we get because it stays inside of the insular nuclear family so i was not doing that i told all of my circles and i still am awed by how available folks were and how thoughtful and how committed I had, first of all, I had a care squad, which included my friend Aisha and three other Black women who organized themselves to communicate with, you know, all my people. They created spreadsheets. <laughs> they created fundraisers. So not only did I have, like food was the low bar <laughs> for what we, my family was going to experience. They created a joy fund for me. So people could could contribute money and I was meant to spend it on things that brought me joy. So I bought all these like art supplies. When I had surgery, there were people outside, like, you know, I'm in like the basement of the hospital. <laughs> there were people outside the hospital singing for me mm. and I could not hear them, but I knew that they were there and I felt their presence. Part of what I could see is not just obviously like what a tremendous help and support it was for me. And, and I have no doubt that my experience of going through surgery and chemo was so much less shitty than it it would have been, not just because I had acupuncture and like, you know, all these like supplements I was taking, but because I had these people, right. There was that piece, but I was also so aware of the gift that I was giving them, right? Like Mm -hmm. for folks to be able to show up for me was a gift that they got. And I think we forget that. We forget like, even though we experience it ourselves, right? Like we know how good it feels to be able to show up and care for somebody who we love. And not because like, we're like earning points with our God, right? But because it makes us feel a part of their lives. It makes us feel a part of something, especially when we know that that thing that we're a part of is someplace where they feel vulnerable or unsafe or are in pain, right? Or are suffering in some way, and we get to like be part of that and help the pain resolve and help the suffering feel more easeful and help them feel less alone and and help them feel cared for, and that that feels good for us. Mm and I just, I so want us to, to remember that. And yeah. Oh, like, like to be clear, like, sorry. Um, I, I am right now I'm cancer free. Um, okay, good. I was going to ask you to like, I'm, yes, yes, yes. Sorry. I'm not, I'm not dying right now. I mean, we're all dying, but you know, you know, this is a thing I will have to, I have to like get scans and blood work for the next five years. And, but my plan is to not die of colon cancer. So just so y'all mm-hmm. know.
0: <laughs> well, I hope you've been getting all the support and every form of healing that you need and also just how timely too that you had finished this book about community and interdependence and knew not to be afraid to lean into as you name it, the generosity of receiving, you know, knowing your loved ones want to show up for you and being open to receiving is very much a part of relationship building. So just a, a beautiful reminder there. I was that definitely stood out to me when I was Preparing for this interview is this generosity of receiving. Mm. And this all for me speaks to the power and hope in community, in knowing and witnessing one another deeply, showing up for each other, caring for each other, and making sure no one falls through the cracks. And for safety, too, the earlier conversation, there's a lot more accountability when all of the relationships within a community are stronger. So again, not to blame the loss of community on individuals because there are systemic barriers there, but there are definitely things that we can do intentionally to be more present for each other and to work on expanding our capacities for empathy and to just be present, to care for each other. And finally, in terms of a vision forward, you share, I'm not interested in having to step out of my daily life To have it, it meaning community, or in creating a separate place in isolation from the rest of the world. That leaves too many people behind. We have to make it where we live, end quote. We are in a loneliness epidemic, which unfortunately was worsened due to the pandemic, with deaths of despair having increased drastically the past years. And so I think these are really serious and important questions to ask. So given all of the challenges of the current extractive system and individualistic culture, how would you recommend people uh, rebuild community right where we are so that even as we work towards a societal overhaul, we might be able to reclaim what we need for our social well-being right now and also so that we can expand our collective capacities to come together to bring forth those larger systemic changes that we yearn for? I feel like
1: part of what happens is like many of us are walking around kind of having the same experience and we're not talking about it, right? So the place that I generally tell people to start is with the people they're already in relationship with and to just begin to have that conversation. The other thing I will say is that, so there's kind of the the reaching out part, right? And then there's a reaching inward part. There is a excavation of, again, these layers of things that tell us that a good life looks one particular way that I feel like we need to discard to figure out what it is we actually want and need and long for, and then to listen to that as we make our way forward to each other. And that like so many of us are are wanting and needing and longing for the same thing. And, and then the other piece I will say is that while we spent, and and for many of us continue to spend like the last few years being separate from other humans, the rest of the natural world is here for us. One of the things that I did during the pandemic is start a coven and as, you know, as one does. And uh, one of the things we did was choose land and people. And by people, I just mean living things that we would do our kind of work together in honor of and we're all here in the bay area so we chose the bay area and we chose eucalyptus and redwoods as our people redwoods because they're indigenous to here and eucalyptus because they were like we're all black women (laughs) they were like our ancestors stolen from their homeland and brought here for a particular purpose and then Kind of criminalized when they no longer served that purpose or couldn't, you know, didn't. Some 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 white man brought the wrong kind of eucalyptus. It was supposed to be a hardwood eucalyptus, and he brought softwood, and they're now everywhere in the Bay Area. And for us, like, it feels very much like you know, as Black people being stolen from from Africa and brought here to work. So we have a relationship with both of these trees, and you know, I think of them as my elders. And there is nothing like putting my head in the lap of a Redwood and listening and and feeling into the connection there to make me feel grounded and less alone and less, especially right now, and less kind of like lost and hopeless. Don't wait any
0: longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we are What has been a book that's been really impactful for you or a publication that you follow? Okay. So I mentioned
1: I'm working on this project about our fundamental understanding of freedom. So almost everything I'm reading connects with that. I just finished Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed." He is an historian and a poet. And it's this like transporting visceral, beautiful, and heartbreaking book about the stories we tell about America's shadow slavery and as a consequence about America. So I just finished that. It's amazing and beautiful. I recommend it. And then I just want to name two other books. One, I just started reading. I'm at the beginning of David Graeber and David Wengrow's book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, which challenges our conventional, i.e. white and European, Understanding of human history, and it's kind of blowing my mind. And I'm also rereading Toni Morrison's Beloved right now. Those are my books.
0: What is a mantra, motto, or practice you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Mm. So I would have to go to our ancestor, Octavia Butler, for the mantra all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change Mm -hmm. for the mantra. You know, one of my practices, I have lots of practices, but one of them that's been really grounding and kind of humbling is that I have been feeding, uh, there's one right now, I can see it out the window, I've been feeding these crows that live in my neighborhood. And they now, they've basically trained me, there's a tree, they go at this, this ash tree in my yard, they go to the ash tree, and they call for me, and then I like run outside and
0: bring them peanuts. And finally, what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment?
1: one of the things I love about the word like inspire is it means to like to breathe life into and I would just go back to the people that that are in my life I have all these extraordinary people who are organizers and activists and healers and farmers and they're like just out here engaging in life and with each other. And I think part of the reason that they're inspiring is, is that it's a collective of people. It's not like an individual person. And our generativeness inspires me, our grief inspires me, our curiosity inspires me. Our commitment to this, like we're trying, right? Like we're trying to, to like make this work that inspires me. And then I think, again, part of that community is the rest of the natural world. These crows that are in my neighborhood, the bees that I keep, The garden I tend to, the ocean, the eucalyptus and redwood elders. Mm. And that life can take so many forms, just continues to, like, fill me with awe. And I think that inspires me. Mm.
0: Well... Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Mia's work and her book, How We Show Up, you can head to miabirdsong.com. And Mia, it's been an incredible honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Mm. One of my um,
1: mentors, Akaya Winwood, I was talking to her during a moment of like, transition and I just like was in that place of not knowing where it was I was going and she was like (laughs) she was like yes that's the best place (laughs) because because she said that when you don't know like every possibility is open and she told me to stay as long as I could in that place of not knowing and to not basically like move forward down a path because I was uncomfortable in being in the place of not knowing. And I feel like we are, we are all <laughs> sitting in a place of not knowing in so many ways right now, and it's uncomfortable as hell. And I get the instinct to kind of just like move forward because we are uncomfortable. And I think that, that we need to listen and just sit in this place of not knowing until the answers become clear.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we do also rely entirely on human-to-human word of mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people so if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app this all helps us so much as well green dreamer is a proud partner of Caliapea foundation which shares our vision and understanding that ecological cultural and spiritual renewal are interdependent the song featured in this episode is Power to Change by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn, Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.